Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg, and I am your host of Yoga Birth Babies, and today we're going to talk about fair play. You may have heard about it. It is a documentary, it is a book, it is a deck of cards, and primarily, the best way I can describe it, it's a system to help honor each other's needs, time, and value, and I recently stumbled into this system, and I thought it was really interesting, so I found a fair play facilitator and therapist to speak to me about the system, so I have Lucinda Gibbons. Let me tell you a little bit about her. So Lucinda holds a master's in marriage and family therapy and a certificate in perinatal health, mental health, mainly postpartum support, and is a certified facilitator and assistant trainer for the fair play method. And Lucinda goes through this methodology. We talk about the four main rules of fair play. We talk about how using fair play improves communication in relationships. And it's not just partnered relationships. It can be any relationships. It can be a work relationship. It can be a roommate relationship. It's really about communication and seeing each other for who you are and your values and honoring and valuing each other's time. I really enjoyed this. So I think you are going to get a lot out of it as well. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to remind you of what's going on at PYC. So by the time this comes out, we would have added a new on-demand, and this one is huge. It's finally our childbirth education on-demand workshop, and it is run by my mentor and my former doula, Terry Richmond. And if you've been listening to Yoga Birth Babies, you've heard Terry many, many, many times. She's brilliant. So we now have added to our on-demand library. So we've got the childbirth education. We have pretty much every workshop that we offer in studio now available online. And we are continuing our online classes. It is just brilliant how I've seen this community grow. Just yesterday in postnatal, we had somebody tuning in. She was doing postnatal from Nicaragua. And then we had another person up in San Francisco. Francisco, and then we had people in the studio. So it's just amazing how we are able to continue to grow this community. And of course, I want to thank you for being part of this community. So check out all of our classes, our on-demand classes, our online classes, our in-studio classes, so that we can continue to work together. The last thing I want to mention is that we continue to run our teacher training, and it's been incredibly successful that we've been doing it two times a year 
in studio in New York City, and then two times a year online. In the last training, we had two folks tuning in from South Africa and one from Dubai. In this current training, we have someone tuning in from Australia. We're just starting this next week, so I got to tell you, I'm not sure how Kelly's going to figure out the time distance, but um, or the time difference, but I'm really thrilled that she's with us. So you can take and participate in this training no matter where you are. And then also just a reminder that once a year, we do our our postpartum training, our postnatal yoga training online. So that's coming up in May. So you can check out our website, prenatalyogacenter.com for all of this information. And then the last thing I want to offer or more invite, if you wouldn't mind taking a moment to please leave a rating and review for the podcast, I'd really appreciate it. I know it's your time and your time is incredibly valuable. So if you have a moment, I would love if you would do that because it helps people find the podcast. All right, enough of me talking. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Lucinda. Hi, Lucinda. How are you today? Hi, I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing really great. And I have to tell you, I'm so excited to dive into a conversation about fair play because I've heard about it. I read the book and it's really interesting to me. So I'm really looking forward to breaking it down more for a man, for the community. So I guess let's start with, um, I'd love to learn more about you and what led you towards marriage and family therapy. Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to do this with you and be here together. Um, so I like to usually start with people and say marriage and family therapy is, is sort of a poorly named, um, profession in a lot of ways. It, at the end of the day, it's a certification. Um, and it's a way of education to get towards doing clinical work with people. Um, just like you might work with a licensed mental health professional in some states or a clinical social worker. There are a lot of different kind of like educational ways that get people to practicing therapy. Marriage and family therapy is really about systems. It's not about necessarily working on specifically marriage and family issues, but it's about knowing that most of us come from a family of some sorts and that that is one of the systems that informs who we are, where we are, what we experience. Other systems, of course, are the systems of our gender identity, our sexuality, our neighborhoods, our schools, our um, community, our ethnicity, all of those different pieces. So marriage and family therapy might need a little bit of a rebrand at some point, <laughs> um, but that's really what it is. And my path to getting there is um, a bit winding. My first career out of college was in the entertainment industry in LA. Um, I went to Emerson College for undergrad, which is a very natural feeder system to film and television. I know that place. So when yeah. I was looking at schools, I got into Emerson and the Boston Conservatory, and I chose oh. the conservatory. So I'm well familiar with Emerson. So yay, Love Boston that. girl there. Yay, Boston. <laughs> That's right. And we're all a part of the same system, the same conservatory system. Yeah. We can use each other's library. Yeah. <laughs> so um very sort of similar in that way. Like they are schools that, you know, lean towards professional careers in entertainment and arts and all of those wonderful things. And I had a lovely time. I absolutely loved it. It was the greatest choice I made somehow at 17 years old for myself. <laughs> um, and I decided that while I was young and didn't have anyone else to think about, I was going to do this thing and kind of live that wild life and throw myself completely into that career. 
And that in my mind, I would eventually be that cool mom who went back to school and became a therapist when my kids were a certain age of like TBD. Mm-hmm. Um, but that got really fast tracked when I was just burning out hardcore. I was getting bronchitis every three months, oh, migraines, geez. all kinds of warning signs for my body that I just couldn't live the way that I was living. And um, I remember friends in entertainment would joke that I think I'm thinking of going to grad school was code for I need a vacation. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I happened to be working on a TV show at the time about therapy called In Treatment, which was a show on HBO adapted from an Israeli television show uh, of the same name. And I was so deeply invested in the show in ways that really didn't have much to do with producing television. (laughs) Um, They had special features where the network would interview real therapists and psychologists every week about what the show was depicting. And I was so much more drawn into that than anything else I had going on with work. And I knew it was time to think about grad school seriously. And then frankly, I just got really lucky that I was in LA and that USC, University of Southern California was right there. Um, the MFT program and the faculty there is really what drew me in and they deserve all of the credit and are the most influential and transformational people in my life outside of my mom and sister. Um, and I loved the way that they talked about the work. Looking at everything as systemic was huge for me. And because of that, it really introduced me to social justice and advocacy, trauma-informed care much earlier than I think I would have encountered it via pop culture because this was, you know, 2011. And now it seems probably ancient to all of us. But at the time, especially in my circle of influence as a white woman, thinking about things like how being colorblind robs people of their real experiences of walking through the world in their skin and whatever color it is. And Understanding the importance of things like the Bill of Rights for People of Mixed Heritage, which is something that I love and have posted everywhere by Dr. Maria Root, um, was transformational for me. So it changed who I am as a person. It changed how I do my work. And it really has allowed me to use my degree and my experience to work in a variety of different settings because systemic work is so important. So I've done traditional therapy. I've taught. I've done consulting, worked in higher education all sorts of things um, because of how important it is to know about the systems of influence in our life. Absolutely. Wow. That is quite the path. (laughs) (laughs) So what sparked your interest in fair play? And then I guess we should also say, will you explain what fair play is? Yes, totally. So um, I can explain it first. I feel like that might be, yeah, that that might be helpful. So fair play is a system, um, which again, obviously one of my favorite words uh, created by Eve Rodsky that in short can be used to create more equity and partnerships. Um, many people start by reading her book, Fair Play, and then there's a deck of a hundred cards that you can use to implement the system that she describes in the book. So each card represents a task or a category of tasks that it takes to run a household and life as an adult, really. 60 of those cards have to do with partnerships between two or more people, and 40 of them are kid-specific cards. So a card might be something like um, home repairs or dishes or school supplies and homework, right? Some some of them are like very literal tasks and some of them are a category of tasks. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are overt goals of the system and then a few kind of covert goals that I love to talk about with people. Overtly, the goals are to streamline your life by eliminating things that don't serve you and your household, um, decreasing friction between players by creating clear expectations and shared vocabulary. And then in doing all of that, you free up time for everybody to create a life that they find interesting. 
via adult friendships, self-care, and then what Eve calls unicorn space, which is also the title of her second book. Um, and we can talk more about that, but basically yeah. it's the stuff that lights you up from the inside and connects you to your community in meaningful ways. And then covertly, my goals for most people that I work with are um, that in like they're the things that we learn about when we implement the system, which I think is just as valuable as the system itself. So ideally, we learn how to put the kind of effort into our relationships that we put into our jobs and into our role as parents, if we are, which like we're a culture who romanticizes the idea of love, meaning that we're able to read one another, one another's minds mm-hmm. and then them giving you what you need without asking. And so being able to reverse that and look at what effort looks like is super, super important. It teaches us how to run into speed bumps or fender benders on our journey through life with other people and repair the hurt and then move forward stronger together and how to communicate in ways that honor both of our needs and and experiences and that of another at the same time. I really like what you said about there's this romanticized idea that we find mm. a partner and they just, we just click and we, they know what yeah. we need because that's just not human nature and no. realistic. No, it's, we are like notoriously terrible as humans at knowing what other people are thinking and meaning going yeah. through. And I'll tell you, it's one of the most common pushback messages that we get about fair play, fair play is when people will say like, well, if things are going well between players at home, do we need to use it? Do we need a system? And clearly nobody has to do anything. But my questions are usually like, one, are things truly going well for all partners? And they're not just fine. They're going well, actually. Mm-hmm. And two, I don't really care what your division of labor at home looks like as long as it's working for everybody. And as long as it's overtly discussed, agreed to, and able to be adaptable enough to weather the storms of life, right? And it's like, sure, the idea of we finish each other's sentences is, there's some niceness to it, but it's really actually like, not a red flag, but an orange or pink (laughs) flag for me when I hear people say that. Because what could be more powerful than being able to routinely say to somebody that cares about you, hey, this is what's going on for me. It's hard, or it's amazing, or it's sad, or all of the above. And having them turn towards you, lean in and say, tell me more. I want to know you more than I already do. And I want to be next to you in this, however you want me to be. Like, what could actually be more beautiful than that? Well, that brings me to something I've been thinking about, about how fair play works to improve communication. Can you talk more about that? Yes, absolutely. So the making the invisible visible is one of the very clear goals of fair play. And this obviously pertains to the idea of invisible work or the mental load, which the system addresses and aims to alleviate for folks very directly, right? But it's all of that is really a communication principle first and foremost, right? And one of the pieces of like uncovering what's going on, sort of that process that uh, that I mentioned earlier of, is it really working well? Let's have a real conversation about that. And Again, like it could be working well, but let's talk about it. Let's put it all out there on the table. Let's have a system and a method and a cadence for checking back in with each other routinely and saying, is this still going well? Is there anything we should adjust? How did that go for us? Could we make it work even better? Right? Like how can we create things and creating that just natural built in effort? And so I think one of the most important kind of factors or pieces of the fair play system is the Mm check-in. And it is usually the thing that I implement with folks 
first and foremost when they come to me to want to work on fair play. I think about how common it is for us in our workplaces to have check-ins. We have one-on-ones, we have sit-downs, touch bases, whatever we call them, scrums within our workplace. And we somehow don't think that we might need to do that in the life that we build with somebody else, which is arguably the most complex thing that we do Mm -hmm. in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. And so creating a check-in thoughtfully creating a time that you put on your calendar that is hopefully as protected as possible where things aren't getting scheduled over it, figuring out what works best for everybody involved for how frequently that should happen so that we can regulate ourselves in between those check-ins, deciding what we talk about each time and knowing what we're going to talk about and how we're going to talk about it, which, you know, one of the factors within that, that I think is so critically important is making space for everybody of varying communication styles, varying um, sort of neurological presentations. Is there neurodiversity within the couple? Is there, you know, neurotypical? Is there anxiety? Like, what are we working with here that everyone's coming to the table with that allows us to regulate ourselves for the period of time that we need to? Because ideally, we're only giving feedback to one another about how things are going in those check-ins. It eliminates feedback in the moment, which is where most of us get in trouble because in the moment, our emotions are high, which means our cognition is low. And so talking about things in the moment for the most part, and there are some caveats that obviously, right? Like if you're learning, if you're in a new job, like having real-time feedback can be helpful. But for the most part, waiting until everyone's emotions are low and their cognition can rise back to the top with their prefrontal cortex completely online and their best executive functioning is more ideal. So for some people, it'll be a once a week check-in and it's easier for us to sit down and like really spend some time together that is meaningful and a good chunk of time and that works best for our lives. For other people, it's going to need to be an everyday thing. Or, you know, a twice a week thing that are smaller because actually a longer check-in is harder for us to tolerate and a longer period of time between check-ins is hard for us to tolerate. It's different for everyone. And I am also a fan of having different kinds of check-ins. So my co-parent and I, for example, have a monthly check-in that is a month ahead look that is different than what we do on our weekly check-in, which is different than what we do on our evening check-in or check-out, as we like to say, like checking out at the end of the day because we parent in separate households. So at the end of the day, it's like, here's what happened today. Can we just confirm what's going on tomorrow? Anything anyone needs to know about? Any changes that need to happen? Okay, great. It's like a recap of the day so that everyone is on the same page. So how would, when you're working with couples, and I, there's more I want to talk about. I definitely yeah. answer the four main rules of fair play, but you made me just really think about opening that conversation for daily or weekly or Mm -hmm. biweekly. So are you recommending using the deck of cards or just sitting down and be like, Hey, let's talk about how was your day? I want to listen. Yeah. Or are you coming at it with a specific something? Really good question. So for most of the official check-ins, we are talking about what we do with the cards, the the kind well, of let's big... talk about what that means for those that are like, yes. wait, wait, cards. What are cards? Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I will tell you, so I realized I didn't answer your original question, also about what sparked my interest in fair play, and I think that that it can be really helpful in hearing this. So, I was pointed to fair play originally by Psychologist Off the Clock, which is a great podcast that I love, and um, they interviewed Eve in the early days about what the what the system was and. 
I was thinking about it at the time, obviously for myself and my relationship with my co-parent and the idea of creating a minimum standard of care, which is one of the things that you do with cards where you and whoever is playing. And, you know, a lot of times we obviously talk about the system as in a hetero cisgender couple and, you know, usually thinking about it for parents. And I know a lot of folks that you work with are either expectant parents, hopeful parents, new parents. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is that's sort of the the sweet spot of when most people come to fair play because they need it, but it can be implemented in so many different situations. And so you build your deck, right? You eliminate things that don't work or that you don't need in the cards. It could be everything from, we don't have a pet, so we don't need the pet card <laughs> to um, actually, we really don't that care about thank you notes. That's not important to us. So we're going to eliminate that, trying to weed out things that are not important to you or not applicable to you so that your life is as streamlined as possible. And then you're going through the cards together to talk about what the minimum standard of care in your household looks like. That is what does done look like in a way that feels good to everyone. So I use the dishes as my example a lot. Most people have some feelings about how to do the dishes, right? (laughs) My husband totally does when it comes to how they fit in the dishwasher. We have a system that he, I put them in and then he corrects it. And I'm like, great, Uh, you do you. I don't take it personally. I do the best I can, but you do you. (laughs) Everyone, exactly. And then do you wash? Do you pre-wash? What does pre-washing look like? Does it involve soap or not? You know, like all of these Right, exactly. And how often do you run the dishwasher? What things go in the dishwasher or not? Do you put your sharp knives in there? Like it's not just quote unquote, doing the dishes, <laughs> right? And this is one of the things that can really trick us in adulthood and in melding our lives with someone else. It sounds like just doing the dishes. It's not. It's especially not if you need, if you're hosting a dinner party and you need enough silverware for everybody. If you have a kid who will only drink out of the orange cup like I do, <laughs> and that cup needs to be clean and ready at a particular time. If you are somebody who really loves to go to bed with clean countertops like I do and clean sinks or not, Mm -hmm. or you want the dishes that are dirty in the sink waiting to be done, done immediately or on the counter waiting to be done. It's like there are so many different things and there's no wrong answer. The only thing that doesn't work is when we don't talk about it and when we underestimate it and think of it as just chores. Mm -hmm. It's not chores. It's how we live life. It's a part of our humanity and our experiences at home. And when we think about the things that we come into friction with partners over or parents or siblings, these are the things a lot of the time. And they are so avoidable. That kind of friction is actually something we can solve for. So if you sit down and talk about what does done feel like for us, what feels reasonable right? Like maybe it's not reasonable, Deb, that you have to put your dishes in in a particular order to a certain degree. Maybe it is. You have to decide that for between the two of you, but it's probably pretty reasonable that you don't do the thing that we all see every once in a while where you put things in so that the water flips them over and you open the dishwasher and there's a soapy, scuzzy bucket of like fluid that's filmy in all of your cups and bowls. And so you can talk about those things or that the orange cup is ready on time, right? Right, Or that like the food is scraped off and so that it's actually clean or what, again, like what Don looks like if you were running the dishwasher, are you also opening it and emptying it? 
So it comes back again to communications and expectations. Yes. Yes. 100%. So you're communicating. What are the expectations? How can we make them clear? And then who owns this task? So the Eve talks about it as CPE, conception, planning, and execution. Owning a task fully means you take all three of those things. This comes into play most often, again, in heterosexual relationships, but in many different relationships, and they're applicable in roommate relationships, in work relationships, all kinds of things. Partnerships that involve more than two people that include, you know, polyamory, ethical non-monogamy, um, just all kinds of things that involve more than one adult, really, right? About like when we see that there's someone who is overwhelmed, overburdened, it almost doesn't matter how involved a partner is. When you see, again, like a heterosexual relationship where there is a very involved male partner slash dad who steps in and does a whole lot and is, you know, very much an equal partner by external standards, you will still probably find a female partner who is overwhelmed because what is happening is that men are stepping in for the execution of a task to complete something that their partner has conceived, planned for, thought about. And so they are still carrying the mental load of that task. Even though someone steps in for the execution of it, that does not mean that that mental load has been alleviated. And it is very often the short stick for that male partner, because without the knowledge of conception and planning for something, it's very hard to execute something well. So they make quote unquote mistakes and feel like they can't do anything right. Mm -hmm. They want to show up. They want to help. They want to be involved. And they're getting just raked over the coals every time for it. There are criticisms waiting for them when they come back. And so the system that is in place in that situation is not working for anybody anybody, everyone's exhausted, everyone's feeling on edge and like they're not getting what they need. And that doesn't work well. And I was, that was very much my family situation, my household situation. I had a co-parent, a partner who was super involved. Like I will tell anybody who wants to talk about it. He is the world's best diaper changer and best (laughs) swaddler. That man can swaddle anything that moves and change a diaper on anything that moves and it will be clean as a whistle. And takes so much joy in his role as a father. But we had different standards for pretty much everything, and we were not talking about them in a productive way. So the idea of creating a minimum standard of care for us was so game-changing and really critical in decreasing tension in our household, and especially now that our family is a divorced family, that parents in separate households, to have very clear expectations about where are minimum standards of care that we share Mm -hmm. and where are they different and how can we talk about that? Because there are some things and where are there tasks that we share and tasks that are separate, right? What things go back and forth where the kid does, what things stay, you know, he handles, for example, our health insurance forevermore because he works in tech. So he has great (laughs) insurance. (laughs) So he will always be in charge of insurance and that's great. So it's like a divide and conquer. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And keeping each other involved, right? Obviously, like if you're grocery shopping, for example, there might be someone who shops for the groceries, but you need to know what everyone is getting. Right. And everyone prefers. You need to know what whoever is doing every meal is doing. If your kids are having lunch packed at school and it's coming back, you need to know what things are not going over well and what things are getting devoured. Like, So we get buy-in during the planning phase of the system with all of the parties who are a part of it, 
right? Well, but there's someone a little who more the into the system. We're going to take a quick break. Yeah. When we come back, so we've talked about the communication. We talked a little bit about the deck of cards and kind of the divide and conquer and communicating about that. But let's get to the four main rules of Fair Play. So we'll take a super quick break and we'll be right back. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours, like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, so I think we've gotten a pretty good idea yeah. about the importance of communication and how we share burden and how we make sure everyone is supported and heard yeah. and taken care of. So let's boil this down to the four main rules of fair play. Absolutely. So the four main rules, and we can go into them more in depth, are that all time is created equal, that we get to each reclaim our right to be interesting that we start where we are now and that we establish our values and standards. So we can go through them one by one, or if there's one that feels like, you know, it's really like your, your favorite, <laughs> we can knock there. No, yeah. Just give a little bit of overview of each yeah. one. Absolutely. So the idea that all time is created equal, um, you know, Eve does an incredible job of talking in the book and we talk about it a ton in the fair play community about toxic time messages. So, the amount of times that someone hears, well, I don't have time to do that. Could you mm -hmm. is a great example of one that I hear a ton, especially in, especially in dual earner households. I feel like you've lived in my life. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we both, my husband and I are always like, Oh, I don't have time. Can you do that? Can you do that? You're right. Cause then it's assuming the other person. Okay. Keep going. I'll stop talking. The other, yeah. <laughs> the other person has more time, different time. And obviously like that is all, that is not an inherently bad statement, right? Sometimes you are checking. Do you have time to do this? And that's a part of your communication cadence between the two of you. But if it's some, if it's routinely that somebody just can't find the time to do the things that need to be done for their household, especially if they can find the time to do things that have to do with taking care of themselves, then that is not, not okay. A toxic time message that a lot of women will pair it back to us that is about them really being complicit in their own oppression is in the time it takes me to tell him how to do that, I could just do it myself. And in the short term, that might be true. But in the long term, anybody who studies like work life, for example, and how we use our time, that is unequivocally like proven to be false, right? Just like the, the economics of time do not play out there. And we would never do that in a job situation. If you had somebody who you were trying to train for a job, especially if it was a job share, you would never say, well, I, it's just faster for me to do it on my own. Mm -hmm. I don't need to teach them how to do that. Right. right. 
So, and there's, there's so many more toxic type messages that when people hear them are, the light bulb goes off and they think, oh my gosh, either I've heard that and believed it. I've said that to myself or to somebody else. I mean, other ones that are particularly applicable for your community are things like breastfeeding is free. Mm, yeah. Oh, that, is it? That can get me. Yeah. I, I will get my soapbox, but I guess I understand. Yeah, absolutely. It's only free if we devalue the time of the person who is using their body to feed somebody else and keep them alive. Right. Right. So, and, and we can go into, I'm sure, many, many toxic time messages about the perinatal time period. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but in a nutshell, it all comes down to how do we value each other's time societally as a sort of general concept, we value men's time as finite and something to be protected and women's time as infinite Mm -hmm. and something that women can just make more time, find more time, be better multitaskers, which again, like neurologically, not a thing. Mm -hmm. Right. And now we know also that none of us are good multitaskers, really. It's really compromising all of our neurological capabilities to be jamming so many things into each moment of our day. Mm -hmm. But when we are putting somebody in a position where they absolutely have to, to keep an entire household running at the cost of their wellness, that's not okay. So that is the rule one. Let's yes. move on to two. So two, reclaiming your right to be interesting. Uh, this usually, of course, comes into play with somebody who has felt like they are carrying the burden of how their household runs. They, again, make that happen at cost to themselves and they lose interest in themselves. We talk a lot about the three roles, the three P's of partner, parent, and professional, that those are the hats that we wear culturally that we value and we lose our sense of who we are as a person Yeah, and we lose our sense of who our partners are as a person. In Eve's data set, and it's something that I, I will tell you, love to do at like gatherings with people, dinner parties, when I found out that they have a partner or, um, you know, I'm getting to know people is to ask them, why are you proud of your partner? And mm-hmm. when men get asked that, typically it's very hard for them to find an answer that doesn't have to do with how their partner is a parent or a professional. Mm. We completely lose who they are as people and who we are as people is what draws us to one another and why we are in partnership. It just reminds me when we, my family and I were on vacation and my kids are now old enough, they're eight and 11, Mm -hmm. that we went to the beach and we went to Florida and they, we were able to leave them. I mean, we're, we're not far, but like my husband and I could walk on the beach without Mm -hmm. them having to be right there. And they were like playing in the sand. Oh my gosh. Does that stage come at some point? It it, it does. It does. And what I actually said, like, cause we got to do this every day, multiple times to go for walks. And I actually said to him, like, Oh, I remember you. I like you. Yeah. Like, like it took, sometimes it takes that separation 100%. of time, but just to be like, I remember you. Yeah. You're yeah. So and good. Be, like, <laughs> if we have forgotten that about the person that we're with, who we are attracted to making children with maybe, you know, living our day in day out, who it's a little bit easier in a lot of ways to see in somebody else how they might be interesting, right? And we're not doing, even though we're doing life alongside them, we're not doing the daily slog of all of their tasks and all of their, you know, the the crummy parts of their job, right? Mm -hmm. And their life. If we forget that in that person, it's really easy to forget it in ourselves. Yeah. It's really easy. And it's, they're the things that we ask people about, right? You meet someone, you say, oh, what do you do for a living? Oh, is that your partner over there? Are those your kids? Right? Like not... What hobbies do you have? What do you really love to, what are you reading right now? What are you thinking about? What, you know, where, where did you grow up? Like, mm-hmm. tell me about what home life was like for you. 
So that mm-hmm. is number two. Let's move on to rule three. Absolutely. So start where you are now. It is, this is probably one of my favorite rules personally for when I'm working with people on how to implement the system. I don't even really care how you do it. I don't care how it looks. I don't care what it sounds like as long as you are starting where you are now, taking some step forward together and kindness and mutual agreement and with effort. So it doesn't have to be, we sit down, we go through the hundred cards, we dish them all out and we knock this out in a couple of weeks and we play the system perfectly. You know, that that doesn't have any value to you personally. Where are you right now? What is going to give you the most relief in an honest and authentic way between the two of you and create connection in a way that you've lost? Yeah. All right. What's number four? Establish your values and standards. So again, like you can sit down and you can dole out all of these cards, but if you don't know why you're doing it, then it's really useless. I think that's my favorite. Yeah. I think that one's my favorite. Absolutely. I love doing values work with people. I do it a ton in individual work with folks. I think it's so important and so powerful. It's also a tenant of acceptance and commitment therapy, which I think is really powerful and kind of gaining a lot of traction in popular therapy these days. Um, the idea that you can set values that are important to you all the time and you can make value aligned choices to me is earth shattering Mm -hmm. because when we really think about it, we've been taught to make choices based on our feelings and feelings are fleeting. Mm -hmm. The emotional experience of a feeling lasts no more than 90 seconds. Mm. All the rest of it is the mental hook that that feeling has on us and that we have invested in it as well. And feelings are not facts, right? Right. Feelings are generated by our biology and our history and our environment. And they, to me, are a flashing traffic sign, an arrow that's pointing you to what might actually be going on. They're a clue. Mm-hmm. but they are not the fact. And so if you know what your values are, again, in times of high cognition, low emotion, then when you're in a spot of high emotion, you can say, what matters to me right now? And how can I make a choice that aligns with that? And I think that that is so important. Um, and then the standards piece of it being most exemplified in the minimum standard of care, the MSC, and how to create that so that it works for everybody and so that everyone can be playing successfully. Like it's essentially a boundary, right? Right. Boundaries are about telling people how to show up for you in a way that works for you, Yeah. how to help them be successful with you. And so when you can create a mutual standard based on mutual values, it sets you up for success and getting to know one another's values and where they come from is a level of intimacy that I don't think we step into in our relationships very often. And I have worked with people who've been married for 20 and 30 years with fair play, and they are getting to know one another in ways that they haven't in those decades of being together, which is so beautiful and moving to be able to talk about, like, what did this look like in your house growing up? Why is this important to you in this way? So that brings me to a couple questions. <laughs> like, yeah. Where do I go first? So part of it is how do these principles apply when working with couples as a therapist. But then also I can imagine like, as I got this book and I went through it and I'm like, Oh, I want to go over this with my husband. Mm -hmm. I want to sit down and talk. He's a, he's a social worker and a therapist. So like Mm. he's game for these things. He's all about the talking, but I also feel that maybe not everyone is. So how does 
if you get one part of the of the couple excited to open this up, what if the other person's not? So how do you? I guess the people that are coming to you as a therapist, you're they're already on board because they're spending the time and investing the money in that. But so how do you get? How do you work with couples with this work? And then how? would somebody get their partner to agree to do this work? Those are yes. two kind of different questions. They, yeah, they are. And they're good questions and big questions. So starting with how I actually, let's start with how we, um, how people get people partners to come on board, because I think that that is the most scary for people. It feels really loaded because underneath the question of what will happen when I tell them about this and that I want to do this is the fear that they're going to say they don't care. Mm. Right. And it's super important to identify that for ourselves. Why am I afraid to start this conversation? If we're afraid to start this conversation because we're afraid the answer is no, I don't care that this cost to you, these costs to you are happening enough to do something that I might be uncomfortable with. That's a, really painful and be so important to know the answer to Mm -hmm. just because you're not asking the question doesn't mean that the answer is what the answer is. And we all deserve to make our choices in life based off of as much fact and information as possible. And you need to have the information of what somebody that you are with is going to say to you when you say, I'd like to do this thing to make my life better and our life better together. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard one. You know, it's one that a lot of folks need some real time to talk through with somebody like me and their fears about what will happen there. The other side of that is it's totally normal and natural for somebody's first reaction to be, no, I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. And to normalize the idea that by the time you get to the introduction to, hey, I read this book or I am reading this book, or I saw this documentary, because there's also a documentary um, that can be a great introduction to fair play. You have had time to think about it. And like any big conversation, the person who is starting it has thought it through, including all of their fears, right? And all the avenues that it could go down. And the person who is receiving it for the first time is receiving it for the first time. Yeah, We can't always expect everybody to think on their feet in the exact way that we would like them to. Just like we don't want to be held to that standard, we can't hold everyone else to that standard. So the conversation and the question sometimes needs to be had several times and in a couple different ways. And thinking about how to start that conversation with somebody in a way that is as, you know, no pun intended, fair as possible to them to give them an opportunity to catch up to where you are is important. If you come at someone and say, hey, our life is ruining mine, we got to do this. Like, yeah, that's that may not go over so well. Yeah, yeah. Like anyone's going to be like, um, what? Defensive or yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But like something more along the lines of, I know that you notice when I get short tempered. Short tempered. I know that you can tell when I snap, and it seems like it's coming out of nowhere to you that there is a whole backstory that's going on for me that I'm keeping from you essentially. And I don't want to do that anymore. And I want to talk about how we can do things differently because I don't want to be that version of me with you. Yeah. I love, that's so great. I really appreciate hearing that. That's great. And such a different experience for anybody, right? So sometimes it's about working with someone on those communication skills of how you present something. 
Sometimes it's about working through what the fears are, what you're afraid the answer is going to be on the other side of the question, having the courage to ask the question again in a different way. You know, there are a lot of different pieces that might be about bringing someone to the table. Um, and in full transparency, I work primarily with couples and then with men in my practice with fair play. Uh, we have so many amazing facilitators in the fair play system who are certified, who specialize in working with women, people who have a lot of times really similar backgrounds to you. And frankly, like I'm, you know, I, I've done the certificate in perinatal mental health training. Like I fully expected to be primarily working with women, but my history in the mental health field has always wound up having me working with men. And um, it makes a lot of sense because my other careers have been primarily in male dominated fields. And so I'm often working with a male partner who has been given this invitation and is like, um, I, I don't, what, what? Do you find that either, I guess it depends on the couple, mm -hmm. um, and their, in the working relationship. Do you find that just using the book and the cards is enough or is it sometimes so big that yeah. having that, again, I'm thinking as my husband, he does a lot of marriage counseling, so I mean, he doesn't tell me what they say, but I can, yeah. I know he holds the space for people yeah. to share. Do you feel like some, the book and the cards are enough or sometimes you, you need that, that yeah. in between person? I, you know, it's hard for me to say this without it sounding like a plug for the work that I do with <laughs> people who are in the network do, but it's a big system. It does take an investment to implement it. And to be honest, when I see folks and have talked to folks who implement it completely on their own, it is usually because there's still somebody who is holding the bulk of the emotional and mental load for the family and driving the, this is how we're going to do this. First, we're going to do this step, and then we're going to do this step. And that is great if that works for them. I don't always see that that alleviates the experience of the mental and emotional burden for that person. Mm -hmm. And so in that way, having somebody who you can work with as a facilitator, I think can create more equity in the situation inherently and can also have somebody who says, okay, I, I see that, like, and you all are doing a great job at working this, but also you're not letting go or, you know, you're talking about your sleep quality and how it hasn't gotten better. Why? Mm -hmm. Okay. So you're still going over lists in your head at night. All right. So what do we have to do about that? Is someone not stepping up? Is someone not stepping back? Is it both? Are we, you know, not holding to the, the check-in standards and timing? Like where do we need to, you know, someone who has a bird's eye view and who sees enough of this, I see dozens of couples and individuals every week who are working the system. So it's pretty easy for me at this point to sniff out where things are going right. and where we can fine tune things. You actually asked a question earlier that I think is important and it's a part of what I do a lot of times with folks, which is that the often the like daily check-in is not actually a cards and fair play related check-in, but is a connection check-in. So I will implement pretty frequently and I will tell you that January, February is a critical time for almost every single couple to do this because the holidays wear us out, push us to our wits end. We go back to our default methods of, of, you know, doing life because our families are around and activating all of those parts of us that have been there for a really, really long time. And making sure that we're taking that time to reset and reconnect every day is mm -hmm. super important. So I will do 10 magic minutes where after you put kids down to sleep and before you 
pick up that laptop, turn on Netflix to binge, go to the gym, whatever it might be. You spend at least 10 minutes connecting and asking those meaningful questions that you were talking about, Deb. How was your day? How are you? What is going on that we don't get a chance to talk about normally? Hey, you looked great today, you know, or using like, I'll use other decks of cards, like questions cards that are conversation starters that remind us how to connect to one another as people. One thing I noticed after reading this book, and again, please listeners, this is not a plug for this book. I just happened <laughs> to come across the system and it intrigued me. Um, there was a, it seems to be a lot of emphasis on language and there's actually something I don't remember if it was a conversation I had with someone about fair play or something I read in the book, but it was something I totally do. Sometimes I'll use like the, the, we, we need to do this. Mm. What what Mm -hmm. I really mean is, can you please do this? So I I noticed, I used like the royal we, and, and I, I realized it's very passive aggressive because I didn't want to include myself in the project I was asking my husband to do. It was like making a phone call, like, Mm -hmm. oh, we need to make this phone call. So I, I started to say it. I said, actually, can you just please make this phone call? And he's like, yeah. Man. But it felt so, I felt so empowered to, Absolutely. to really share that I didn't want to do it. And when I said we, it kind of put one of us should do it. And I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. Please do this. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of language? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So you're touching on one piece of it, which is that the ambiguity with which we speak is really something that needs to be refined, right? We need to, you mean something specific in that, which is, I would like you to do this. He's walking away with no clear directive of that or who should do it or that you are clearly saying, I do not want to. Can (laughs) you please? Right? So there's a ton of ambiguity there, which is really difficult for both people to succeed in the midst of. It's also very much giving away our own power in our communication to do that. Right. And I'm a big fan of assertive communication. Assertive is on the spectrum in the middle between aggressive and passive. We all have needs and thoughts, and those are the things that should inform our boundaries that we can simply tell somebody else about. It's a boundary that you don't want to make that phone call. That's okay. Yeah. You're allowed to have it, that. Was, it just really, it made me step back and realize how many times yeah. I put this task needs to be done. And when I don't want to do it, not, but I, and I just yeah. wasn't clear. And yeah. ever since really finding my voice with asking for help like that, it really, mm-hmm. it's felt so much better. And, and that Absolutely. just felt like is a beginning. And I was expecting like, Oh, I don't really have time either, but my husband's like, sure. Okay. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. great. Check done. Yeah. Most people are pretty game when we have like knowingly and purposefully entered into a life with them yeah. to do some adult tasks together and separately. Like it's, you know, it should be an understood piece of things. And again, if he says no, either I don't want to or I can't, that is important information for you and for the two of you to have. You have to make a plan if the phone call needs to get made. Yeah. So that version of, of communication and what's kind of important is crucial to fair play. We also highlight a lot of different communication vulnerabilities, whether you're talking to someone with like that sharp tone that we were talking about earlier when you're inviting someone to the table for fair play and the tone makes it so that someone else cannot hear you or, you know, long windedness is a really easy communication vulnerability. And I have certainly fallen prey to thinking, 
well, that person that I'm speaking to doesn't seem to care. So if I just talk more about this and give them more reasons <laughs> to care, then surely they will. It's funny. I don't go for the long-windedness, but I go for the tone. When you said that, I'm like, oh, I'm so guilty of not yeah. hearing my own tone. <laughs> Absolutely. Or the bottling it up until we explode. I mean, there are yeah. many different communication vulnerabilities that we all play into because we don't invest in that very much culturally into how to speak to one another in ways that both convey where we're at and make it so that someone else can hear us. So it's very critically important. I also think it's really important to remember that language is both an input and an output. We know that what our brain hears us saying informs the way that we think about it, Mm -hmm. right? It's why using anti-racist language and inclusive language is so, so, so important. Yes, it is important to honor all people and their experiences and how they walk through life and how they prefer to be spoken about. But it is also important to change the way that we think about them away from from the inherited ideas that we've received culturally. Mm-hmm. And our language is critical to that. And it happens in our partnerships as well. The way that we speak about somebody else, and it's so glorified. I mean, we can think about especially like family sitcoms in the 90s and what seemed funny in like the the television, especially around couples, it was funny for a mother-in-law who had no boundaries and walked into your back door without knocking mm-hmm. to be around all the time. It was funny to have a husband who didn't know where the butter was. It was funny to have a wife who was so strung out that she falls asleep at the dinner table because she's so exhausted from keeping everything moving. And it's not funny. Yeah. Right. And so how we talk about things can shape that and can change our perception of things in real time so that it aligns with our values and how we feel about it. This has been such a great conversation. Again, it comes back to communication. So I'm really, really honored that we have this talk. We're going to take Likewise. one more, we're going to take one more quick break. Yeah. And when we come back, can you share one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer for new and expectant parents. We will be right back. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. All right. So what do you want to throw at us? You've already given such great information. What would your final tip be? You know, I think it's so important to keep in mind that as a culture, we dramatically underestimate and undervalue the shift that happens when you go from two people in a partnership to two people in partnership who are also now each parents in their own right and co-parents with each other. It's a dramatic change. We don't acknowledge it. We don't honor it. We don't give people tools with how to move into those new roles. You're essentially taking on two new roles, you as a parent and you as a co-parent. And our fair play facilitators and most couples therapists I know, and I'm sure your husband is one of them, know the phrase, and then we had kids really well. <laughs> I mean, I thought we were equal partners, and then we had kids. I thought I married a feminist, and then we had kids. We were doing so well together, and then we had kids. Yeah, It's 
it, we hear it over and over and over again. It's not because the kids are, you know, inherently terrible to have. It's not because the things that were going on were not true and real before. It's because we don't tell people what this huge shift is going to be and what to do about it. Again, when we, if we talk about it, we talk about it in those sort of like funny, not funny ways Mm -hmm. that are not helpful and that perpetuate the problem. So I, I just want, especially knowing what your audience is, for people to know that this is big. And when we have new big things, we need new big skills and systems to go along with them and to help us navigate them. It's not because we're not doing a good job. It's not because we made a mistake. It's because when we have more going on, we need more. Mm -hmm. And that is so totally okay. I also kind of like packed in there to add like a a asterisk and bonus (laughs) star to that as somebody who works, you know, and spends so much of my time on with men and men's mental health to remind ourselves and to know we have all come by this honestly, right? Like men are not at fault here, just like women are not at fault here. It is a system that is at fault here. Mm -hmm. And knowing that these are, again, like the inherited messages that are passed down through generations and that were created on purpose and insidiously over time. And that we can say, actually, I don't buy into that. And because I don't buy into that, I'm going to do this differently is really, really important. We don't need to demonize any one group of people. We're all just doing the best job that we can, but we do need to do better Mm -hmm. and we need help to do better. And that's okay. It's what's actually really special. When we need help, we get to draw other people into our world and our sphere of influence in really meaningful ways. And we know that on the other side of that help is a change that is probably going to be really powerful and beautiful. Mm -hmm. And just strengthen the team. Absolutely. Where can people find your work? Thank you for asking. Um, so my website is currently lakehousefamilies.com. My business is Lake House, a space for families. I will give you the spoiler alert that we are transforming and becoming Lake House Collective this yeah. year, which is more of a collective of different providers because I'm so lucky to work with so many different people who have different specialties in all kinds of different areas and knowing that it takes a village. Sometimes your village needs to include a financial planner. Mm-hmm. And you don't know where to go or a pelvic floor physical therapist and you don't know where to go. And um, so Lake House Collective is a really wonderful group of practitioners who all have similar values um, where, you know, you can you can get a referral from us to all kinds of different services that you and or your family might need. But for now, it's lakehousefamilies.com and it'll keep sending you to Lake House Collective <laughs> when that changes live for at least a year. So you're good there. Um, and folks can book a session with me if they'd like. I always offer complimentary 20-minute consultations if you want to get to know me and see my face moving on a screen and ask <laughs> me questions about who I am and how I work and all of those different things. And I will be super straightforward with folks about whether I'm their person or they you know, need to get a great referral from me. Um, but I'm, I'm there on the website doing sessions all the time. If folks are interested in being trained as a fair play facilitator, they're going to meet me as well because I do those trainings for the organization. And I love, love, love doing it. Oh, well, thank you so much. What a fantastic opportunity to learn more about this system. So thank you. Of course. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. 
This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.